Section 17 of Loop Garou. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Loop Garou by Eden Philpotts. The Obi Man. Hidden in the heart of a tropical tangle of palmetto and mango, plantain and palm, perched on the lonely apex of a lofty hill overlooking the Caribbean Sea, stands a hut beside a scanty patch of cleared land. The hut is thatched with dried cane tops and the broad leaves of the palm. The sky is very blue above. Hot air dances and shimmers against the baking earth and the dark green and orange tawny of the forest beyond. A narrow strip of thorny cactus hedge fences the cultivated land. Here a tamarind tree or two rear their heads. Here a clump of bananas, their broad leaves all frayed and tattered by sea breezes, bend beneath giant clusters of fruit. A goat is tethered to a little pomegranate tree in the garden. Over the cleared soil itself grows vines of the sweet potato. This lonely habitation, situate on a mountainside in Tobago, belongs to a time-worn fragment of Ethiopian humanity, a disciple of mystery, a priest of Obia. Glance twice at his secluded ragged hut, and signs of exceptional character and significance become instantly apparent. It lies very far removed from all other dwellings, for no black man would care to pitch his own home within sight or sound of it. The situation is silent and mysterious. The spot is adorned with strange fragments of things dead. Two eyeless bullock skulls ornament the entrance of the Obi-Man's dwelling, and his land is fenced with a fantastic ribbon, whereon hang empty bottles, bright feathers, and fragments of gaudy rag. Within this weird zone no man may enter uninvited, and certain it is that no black man would do so. For Obia is a real terrible business still, a creed beyond the power of missionary to shatter or destroy, and a negro would no more speak disrespectfully of it than of his own grandparents. Enter this hut and look round it, gradually observing the monstrous matters hidden in the gloom as your eyes become accustomed to the darkness. Dried mummies of beasts and men haunt the place, hang against its walls and sit propped in corners with a loathsome semblance of living about them festoons of birds eggs and curious seeds and empty bottles hang across the roof skins of animals and birds litter the floor strange malodorous smells greet the nostrils there is a piece of red glass in the roof and thrown down through this falls a round flaming eye of light the illumination centers upon a little three-legged table, scattered over which lie strange, uncanny-looking fragments. Filth, mystery, and darkness blend in grim combination here. Across one angle of the hut hangs a curtain which hides Arcanum, the Chamber of Horrors, or Holy of Holies, whichever your attitude towards Obia inclines you to call it. Jesse, the mystic himself, was in his garden. A great snake-gourd trailed and twined over a pile of rubbish at one corner of the property. And here, hidden under the shadows of citron and lemon trees, the Obi-Man worked. 
He appeared very ancient. His old ribs made a gridiron of his lean breast. His limbs were skin and bone. His scanty wool was gray. A tangled network of furrows and deep lines scarred and seamed his face in every direction. And curiously wide apart, on either side of a flat Ethiopian nose, the man's eyes gleamed from his withered headpiece, like the eyes of a toad. Jessie was in extreme undress that afternoon. Only a few fragments of a pair of trousers covered his loins, and a band of red cloth circled his weazened throat. Despite his evident age, no little physical strength remained to him. Indeed, his present task sufficiently proclaimed the fact, for it was no simple agricultural operation. In fact, the chance observer would have said that Jessie must be digging a grave under the shadow of his citron and amongst the roots of his great snake gourd. As he worked, getting deeper and deeper, ramming the broad wooden spade home with his horny feet, and rapidly increasing the pile of earth at his side, Jesse sang to himself, in a piping old man's treble, with the usual plaintive West Indian whine. A bluebird sat on a thorn, and put his head upon one side to hear the song. A green lizard, with eyes as bright as Jesse's own, rustled out from under the cactus fence and stopped with palpitating tremulous motion of his front paws to listen also then the bird flew and the reptile fled for neither enjoyed the song overmuch this is what jessie sang lo him lie lo him lie in the light of the moon and a twinkle in sky but only de root of de snake guard know how he come to de hole so black and low Obia die, obia obia do, obia die, obia obia do. Lo him lie, lo him lie, under the light of the moony sky. But nobody see where the snake guard grow, twining him root far down below. Obia die, obia obia do, obia die, obia obia do. Lo him lie, lo him lie, where the worms they crawl in the white man's eye. But only the snake guard and Jesse know where him sleep so still in the hole so low. Obia die, obia obia do, obia die, obia obia do. The song rose and sank and seemed to hang in the trees and creep about like a live thing, while its last penetrating notes were answered by the crisp chirp chirp of great winged crickets. Jesse's uncanny melody truly fitted the place, the man, and his task. He worked on steadily, only stopping once, like Shakespeare's grave-digger, to address a fragment he suddenly exhumed. It was a flat-browed negro skull, with low, receding forehead, and Jesse set it before him on the grave's edge and spoke to it. "'Who was you, sar?' he asked, and gravely waited for a reply. "'You no answer, sar?' Then you most rude and parent young fellow whereupon he playfully smacked the empty brain pan before him with his spade and laughed a cracked horrible chuckle which greatly frightened the goat tethered at hand then the obi man grew suddenly sober and spoke to his skull again you larf too eh you larf me guard i don't know what you larf for you's jepson dat's you i remember jepson Massa Ford, he want Jepson rub out and send him with message to Jesse. Ah, and now he want white man rub out. Why, Jesse, him very great use to Massa Ford. He <laughs> he. 
he labored in silence and dug on until his pit extended five feet underground his next task was to conceal every sign of the aperture and he set about hiding all traces of it with most artistic neatness he buried the pile of damp earth under dead palm leaves broken wood and rubbish then he trailed over it a scraggling shoot or two from the snake gourd after that he covered the hole with thin planks and piled earth upon these until the entire concerned looked to be nothing but a newly turned furrow in the aforesaid patch of sweet potatoes having made an end of the business jesse sought his outer gate and posting himself there screened his face from the glare of the sunshine and looked out with his bright toad's eyes down the steep hill before him a magnificent tropical panorama of savage forests distant snowy beach and wonderful sea spread below and winding up through the woods struggling as it were with difficulty through dense undergrowth and narrow places full of thorny cacti and trailing weeds there ascended a bridle path flanked by bewildering tangles of foliage and mighty tree in volcanic boulder here and there the flaming flowers of bois immortal lighted the woods with crimson brightness at other points all festooned and linked together with twining and climbing parasites or gray curtains of lace-like lichens arose palmetto and palm and notable forest giants some gleaming with wondrous blossoms some bending under great wealth of varied fruits and through the mingling draperies of green and brown olive and gold under the feathery crown of the bamboo amongst the little green blossoms of the mango or hovering before more brilliant flowers flying like liquid gems in the prodigious glare of sunlight did hummingbirds with breasts of emerald and ruby flash and dance every step or terrace in the steep acclivities of the hills was crowned with lofty trees or cabbage palms and from point to point arose the gaunt bleached limbs of some arboreal corpse waiting for tempest to lower its dead limbs and blot it out from the great living hillside far below glimmered a white beach and through the woods all silent in the great heat arose a sigh of surf breaking surf that even from this elevation could be seen lying like a band of silver between the gorgeous many-tinted sea and the pale shore far away on the western side of the hills extended long undulating fields of bright green vegetation in their midst arose a building with metal roof flashing under the sun and a tall black chimney it was the pelican sugar estate an important and prosperous concern that stood like an oasis in a great desert of stagnation for tobago was a languishing island just then and not a few different factors combined to depress and trouble the place there was but little money moving while black labor became harder and harder to command sugar culture indeed threatened to grow a played-out futile industry as had cotton growing before it and folks spoke hopelessly of the island's future unless some new enterprises should soon be hit upon and capital from fresh sources speedily flow in but john ford overseer of the pelican estate laughed at this universal lamentation and pointed to his concerns as a standing refutation of the accepted fact that no good thing could now come out of tobago touching this man and for the better understanding of what follows a brief word must be spoken 
He had labored here twenty long years on behalf of his uncle, one William Ford, merchant of Thames Street, London. He had toiled zealously, made handsome profits for his relation, gained that old man's good will, and won from him a promise that when the said merchant should depart this life and leave his goods to other hands, the Pelican Sugar Estate would be bequeathed to the present able overseer of it. Upon the strength of which promise John Ford married a Creole girl, begot a long family, and prayed his uncle would make an end of living as soon as possible. Time rolled on, the estates prospered, and their owner, instead of passing away, turned his London business into a company, and wrote informing his nephew that he designed to spend a portion of the coming winter in the West Indies. John Ford, a man honest because he deemed honesty the best policy, and for that reason only, awaited his wealthy relation's advent with some interest, and discovered, when he presently arrived in Tobago, that Mr. William Ford was a pompous and powerful bachelor, hale in mind and body, sound at every point, clearly without any immediate intention of joining his ancestors. Uncle and nephew were extremely friendly. However, the elder man highly commended his overseer's conduct of affairs, and repeated his assurance that the Pelican estate should in the future become the property of him and his heirs forever. John Ford returned thanks with humble gratitude, and lavished upon the old man such West Indian hospitality as Tobago is justly noted for. But privately the overseer grew glum and grim. He yearned for the green plantations. He was tired of making money for other people. He desired to send his growing lads home, and give them the benefit of English educations. These things grew further off than ever now. His uncle cared nothing for growing lads. Indeed, the old man proved to have distinctly miserly instincts. He even desired to cut down expenses on the estate at one or two points. And John Ford felt that Uncle William was a decidedly undesirable individual, a man whose decease must unquestionably tend to better the prospects of the entire community. He also recollected that life in the tropics is an uncertain matter, and prevailed on Mr. Ford, Sr., to extend his visit. But when May came, the old man found that the West Indies were getting too hot to hold him, and upon the afternoon of this narrative only, two days further sojourn, remained of his stay in Tobago. Then the Royal Mail Company's packet Solon would sail for Barbados, and William Ford was going in her, about which time his nephew began to feel that desperate troubles need equally desperate remedies. Jesse saw no sign of man or beast approaching his lonely den. He left the gate, therefore went into his gruesome hut, and proceeded with preparations for coming guests. His own attire appeared to be the main and most important matter. Disappearing behind the curtain which screened his sanctum, the obi-man entered upon the most weird, bizarre, unlovely toilet it is possible to imagine. On his head he placed a fur cap with long black horns, between which hung tinkling trophies of empty medicine bottles and beads. Over his lean body and legs he drew hairy garments, coarsely painted with daubs of crimson and white. These things were girt upon him with a waist-belt of feathers. His arms remained bare, 
but upon wrists and ankles he tied links of snakeskin and elaborate bracelets of red and black crab-eye seeds about his neck he festooned a chain of human teeth and upon his breast he fastened a loathsome amulet a shrivelled-up human fetus the hideous ghost of a thing that had never lived he next painted sundry blue hieroglyphics over his wrinkled face and then gazed at the general effect in a scrap of looking-glass the sight evidently gave him unqualified pleasure yes obi somebody dis day he said to his goat if he looked unearthly in his own dim dwelling-house jessie's appearance under the sun's fierce eye was not less so the brilliant scraps of cloth and daubs of paint now gleamed like fire the glass bottles on his crest danced and jingled and flashed a thousand fantastic trifles amidst his accruements not before visible now became painfully apparent he had secured strange bribes from sailor clients in the past civilization in the shape of a big jackknife and a little brass-bound bible hung around his neck probably the word of god never dangled in such strange company before the horrid thing on his breast had yellow eyes stuck in its head and now they glimmered with a sort of life whilst its shriveled little arms clung about its master and hugged him then down in the hot haze of the distance partially hidden mid trees and rocks our monster saw indications of a small cavalcade struggling up the hill a row of horsemen in single file were wrestling with the slippery tortuous path and jessie could catch glimpses of white garments and brown horses and hear the thud of hoofs and the sounds of human voices raised in laugh or oath as one or another slipped and stumbled or sat secure and watched others in trouble then again entering his home he did all that remained to be done he stooped low routed amid debris in a corner and from a box hidden beneath it removed a second smaller box which was carefully wrapped up in paper it contained a thick glutinous gray substance about the consistency of bird lime taking some of the stuff upon a skewer jessie pulled back the ball of his left hand middle finger until the space was left beneath the nail into this he carefully plastered his compound from the box all his nails were particularly long and dirty so this strangely anointed middle finger was not calculated to attract the least attention then he polished up the edges of the nail hid away the box again and disappearing behind his curtain sat quietly down and waited for the coming party presently the horsemen arrived and drew up before jessie's gate there were three of them a lad a man in his prime and an elderly gentleman the last very hot and very exhausted i fear he's out said the adult looking about him it was john ford a tall brown individual dressed in white with a panama hat on the back of his head twenty years of tropic sunshine had tanned him dark had streaked his black hair with gray had killed his conscience but thanks to his own temperate habits and fine constitution had left his liver sound as a bell the lad was john's son and the elderly personage his uncle jesse jesse called out john ford and jesse who knew his visitors had arrived and only waited their summons now appeared and bowed low while his finery made wild music 
"'By Jove, we're lucky!' exclaimed the overseer. "'I told you that you should see an Obi doctor, Uncle, "'but I never thought he would have all this war paint on.' "'Tell him to get out of sight while I dismount,' answered the old man. "'No horse alive could stand a thing like that. "'Gib you good day, Massa Ford, and gib you good day, Massa Jack, "'and gib you very good day, too, sir,' said Jesse, bowing again and again. "'This is my uncle, Mr. William Ford, owner of the Pelican Plantations, Jesse.' "'The Obi man bent respectfully. "'Wonderful estate, Massa, wonderful cane on de Pelican land, sir. "'Come in, Jimin.' I was proud to see you in this place. They dismounted, tethered their horses, and followed the negro into his hut. Jesse brought fruit and a bottle of rum, and directed Master Jack Ford, with whom he was on great terms of friendship, to get some calabashes from a corner. Wish I'd known of this visit, sars. Then Jesse had had things ready, he said. Mr. Ford Sr. sat and mopped his brow and breathed heavily. His climb in the hot sunlight had exhausted him a good deal. The overseer ate an orange, then lighted a cigar and began to talk. He was wonderfully cool for the time of day. "'You've got to thank Jesse, I can tell you, Uncle William,' he said. "'Why, he's been worth pounds and pounds to you. At one time a tremendous deal of sugar cane was stolen here. The black thieves came by night—' "'He, he, black thieves come by night,' echoed Jesse." "'and simply took tons of stuff,' continued John Ford. "'I placed the matter in the hands of the parson and the police, "'but they could do no good. "'Then I came to Jesse, and he had things right in no time. "'Things right in no time,' said the old negro. "'You see, Jesse put your lands under Obia, Uncle William. "'Of course I don't believe in all that rubbish any more than you do, "'but Obia is a real terrible thing to the niggers.' Our friend here just threw a spell over the place and hung red rags and empty bottles and feathers about on the skirts of the plantations. And devil another cane went. Devil another cane go, he he, sniggered Jesse. Presently it transpired that this was William Ford's last excursion in Tobago. He and his nephew and the boy Jack had ridden up from the Pelican estate below to see Jesse, one of the greatest curiosities in the island. Having spent half an hour in his company, the party intended to go down to the beach and enjoy a bath before returning to Scarborough, the seaport town. John Ford knew Jesse pretty well, perhaps better even than people supposed. Curious things had happened in Tobago once or twice, and recalcitrant colored gentlemen from the Pelican estate had been unaccountably missed. But, of course, individual Ethiopian lives did not command much attention— and because a man disappeared it by no means followed that ill must have befallen him there was plenty of room on the island seen any turtle on the beach lately asked jack plenty turtle sar i takes walk on moony nights and see the sand all live with turtles and the sea with sharks eh laughed john ford we're going for a dip before dusk he added but not in the open water "'There's a little natural bathing-place below, hemmed in with rocks. "'I've had the sea hedgehogs cleared out of it, and now it's perfect. "'You know it, Jack?' "'Mr. William Ford presently declared that he felt much better and completely rested. "'Then the entire party walked round Jesse's garden, and he showed them the objects of interest. "'That snake guard, Massa, and dem creepy guards like snakes, "'they grow live at night and crawl about. "'And that tree-dar, him silk-cotton tree.' "'De obia tree, sar. 
what Luguru put his skin under when he go out. A Luguru is a sort of vampire, explained Jack. He's a terrible chap, Jesse, isn't he? Oh, him terrible bad fellow, sir, admitted the Obi man. Presently our visitors, having seen all Jesse's wonders, were preparing to depart. As they proceeded to his gate, their host stopped suddenly with evident dismay. "'Gentlemen!' he exclaimed. "'Why you no drink with me?' "'Then we certainly will do so,' answered the elder Ford good-naturedly. And this he said because, as they ascended the hill, his nephew had casually mentioned that to refuse liquid refreshment from the mystery man was a terrible affront in his eyes. They returned to the hut for a moment, and Jesse directed Jack to rinse out four split calabash bowls while he drew the cork from a stone bottle of rum. "'Make Master Jack's very weak, please, Jesse,' said the overseer. Then the negro, endeavoring to get a look of cheery hospitality into his bright toad's eyes, poured out four bowls of refreshment. He handed one to each guest, and reserved the fourth for himself. A very acute observer might have noticed that the long, bony metal finger of Jesse's left hand rested for a brief while in one of those calabashes. That destined for Mr. William Ford. The boy, draining his weak rum and water, went out to the horses, and a minute later his father followed him. "'Uncle has changed his mind about the bath, Jack,' he said. "'The old gentleman is going to rest a little longer, and then follow us.' We have arranged to meet at the gate of the estate and ride home together. I'm not sorry he's given up the idea. Come along. And in the meanwhile, Ford, Sr., had drunk half his rum and water and then suddenly fallen forward at Jesse's feet. Where's my nephew? he asked feebly. There's something wrong with me. I cannot see. Massa Ford back in a moment, sar. Hot sun, sar. Damn hot sun. Drink, sar, quick. Jesse put you right. He handed the old man his calabash of spirit and water, and again a long black finger touched the liquid in it. Then the obi man went out and looked down the hill. Jack's boyish laughter echoed away in the woods. Presently it grew faint and ceased. There was no further sound save Mr. William Ford's horse tethered at the gate. Sometimes it stamped its hoof or dragged at its bridle to reach fresh grass while with unceasing swish-swish-swish from side to side its tail kept the flies off. Then the day drew to a close, and the glorious gold and crimson of a tropical sunset flamed over the hillside and painted the sea below. While Jesse took off his insignia of office, donned scanty remains of a pair of trousers again, and busied himself with sundry matters. John Ford and his merry boy enjoyed their dip in the Caribbean, and afterwards rode as arranged to the entrance of the pelican estate there to meet the owner thereof but he did not come then the hour growing late and the scant twilight having nearly sped they suspected their relation tired of waiting had proceeded alone towards scarborough his road lies straight before him he cannot miss it we will hurry to overtake him said john ford but father and son overtook nobody and were in some consternation on reaching home to find that Uncle William had not arrived. Jack was instantly sent off to rouse the authorities, while John Ford, with a friend or two, rode back to the Obi-Man's hut. It was a trying matter struggling up the hill in darkness, but they managed it. The tree-frogs raised their little voices in the palms, 
Bigger Batrachians boomed from the marshes. Fireflies spangled the darkness. Strange sounds and rustlings of nocturnal life were audible everywhere. But to West Indians, such concerns appeared no more remarkable than the gleam of a gas lamp or the rattle of a cab in deserted nocturnal streets at home. The only thought in their minds was to reach Jessie's hut with all possible speed, and this they presently did. Massa no come. Why, Jessie walked down the hill with him. He went ever so soon after you, Massa Ford. He said he'd catch you and go bathe. He make up his mind to bathe, sir. Bathe? I hope to heaven he didn't, said the overseer uneasily. There's only one safe spot on the beach, where I went with Jack. His friends soothed his alarm. They opined that an old man of sixty at least would hardly be likely to have gone bathing alone. But time proved John Ford's fears to be well-grounded, and showed that Jessie had told the truth. No sign of Uncle William appeared that night. At dawn upon the following morning, however, a brown horse was found tethered to a coconut palm on the shore, and near the animal lay a pile of clothes. Uncle William had taken the wrong turn, and evidently making up his mind to enjoy a bathe at all costs, had done so. It was a wonderful performance, even for such a hale, hardy man. Doubtless the Tobago sharks could tell the sequel to it. His watch was in his pocket, his money also. Nothing had been touched. Indications of footprints ran down over the dry, soft sand to the edge of the water. That was all. John Ford appeared to be terribly prostrated. The fact that the Pelican estate presently became his own property, and that his younger sons would now be able to enjoy English educations, gave him very little pleasure. He blamed himself bitterly, and would not be comforted either by his wife or his friends for fully six months. Then he cheered up a little. Old Jesse continued to be a great institution at Tobago. He tended his garden and his snake gourd as of yore, and sometimes sang snatches of that curious song in the piping voice of extreme age. Lo him lie, lo him lie, where the worms they crawl in the white man's eye. But only the snake guard and Jesse know, where him sleeps so still and the hole so low. Obia da, obia obia do, obia da, obia obia do. The End End of Section 17